CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um... A lot to talk about today. You know, uh, this week, uh, given that it's eight weeks before the election, uh, we're starting to review in more detail the races on the ballot. And uh, yesterday, uh, as you know, we, we well, to start with, you know that Georgia has not one but two U.S. Senate seats up for grabs this November. And yesterday, uh, we spent an awful lot of time talking about especially the Republican candidates in that jungle election on November third for the second U.S. Senate seats. We talked a lot about Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, who were in a heated battle, uh, and also uh, talked a little bit less about the fact that Raphael Warnock uh, and uh, his uh, opponents in that race, Matt Lieberman uh, and uh, others, are all competing. We talked a little bit about that and gave no, almost no time to talking about Senate race number one, which is the contest between John Ossoff and David Perdue. So we're going to spend more time on that race number one during today's show. Um, we also today, you know, it, it's interesting. We know how poisonous the partisanship has become in our politics. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk about a story that's an indication of just how hard it is for us to come together at all. Uh, an interesting little story that involves uh, Killer Mike and a meeting he had with Governor Brian Kemp and the very heated response that both liberals and conservatives had to the two of them getting together. So we're going to talk a little bit about that later and what it says to, about our inability to work with one another. Uh, joining us today uh, for all of that and more, uh, Jim Galloway. He's, of course, my partner on the show on Mondays and Fridays, lead political uh, writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him in Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper itself, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Good morning, Jim. Nice to have you here, of course. Oh, it's great to be here. Great to be here. Uh, we're also joined by uh, uh, two of the, uh, for, well, one former elected official, the other continuing to serve, two of our favorites uh, on this show, uh, Sam Olins, the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, and before that, the uh, chairman of the Cobb County Commission, now a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. And we also have uh, Michael Thurman, who is the CEO of DeKalb County, but has served in uh, more offices than we can even list in just a couple of minutes in the state of Georgia, among them uh, labor uh, commissioner. So, uh, Michael, you would have particular interest in what's happening in terms of unemployment and the ability of the state to be able to help people in need. But in the meantime, thanks for being here, Michael. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Delighted to be with you. Let's give you a little shout out before we go any further. You received a a, a really powerful uh, award or commendation recognition uh, for your work on uh, COVID. Tell us what uh, what you uh, were singled out for and by whom. Well, the DeKalb County uh, Department of Technology, led by John Matowski and the DeKalb County government. Uh, was recognized by the National Association of uh, County Officials as well as a major digital evaluation firm as being one of the technological leaders uh, in our nation. DeKalb was ranked fourth in the nation among counties between 500 and a million people. So we're very proud of that. I'm proud of John and our IT professionals. They are the unsung heroes of COVID-19 response, not just in DeKalb, but in our school districts, in our county government, when you think about remote learning, and we talk about it, but we don't talk about the people that create the platforms for that to happen. And after this pandemic is over, we'll look back and recognize and celebrate the IT professionals that are making it happen for DeKalb and other entities uh, in public and the private sector. 
Well, congratulations on being uh, singled out. Uh, we're also joined by Karen Owen, political science professor at West Georgia University. Karen, it's always fun to have you here. And uh, you pointed out to us uh, that you're getting classes taught. You're getting in, up into to the university and teaching in person, but you're facing some challenges, aren't you, Karen? Yes. Thank you for having me today. And it is. The, the students um, are not wanting to attend in-person classes as often as we had hoped. And, you know, it's understandable, but we are making it work, especially with the option to use technology and do hold some virtual sessions. As you pointed out, uh, you'd really like your students with you right now because you're teaching an introduction to U.S. government class, a lesson that we all could use, I think, in these days and times. Absolutely. When I think it's very important that those students are getting their civics 101. Um, I, I want you. I hope you'll all indulge me just for a moment, and, and I want to bring the panel in on this uh, as I do this because I don't think we should do this show without acknowledging uh, that this is the 19th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the United States, um, the 9-11 attacks, a day when 2,977 people died, um, 343 of them were firefighters, 71 were law enforcement officers who died at the World Trade Center and on the ground in New York City, another law enforcement officer was killed when passengers tried to take over United Airlines Flight 93 and crashed it, caused it to crash without reaching its destination in Washington in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You already heard on NPR News that both uh, uh, Biden and Trump are headed to Shanksville uh, today. Um, 55 military personnel died at the Pentagon. Um, it was a, a, a horrifying and, and somber day for those of us who witnessed it as it unfolded, and that means many, many people. And if you'll really indulge me, and then let me ask the panel for their thoughts. Um, Billy Collins was the poet laureate of the United States when all this occurred. And, and I want to read to you, just as a tribute to the 9-11 victims um, 19 years later, just a little bit of a poem that he wrote about it. He focused on the names of people who died and how he thought they were going to be remembered. And here's just a little bit of what he wrote. Names written in the pale sky, names rising in the updraft amid buildings, names silent in stone or cried out behind a door, names blown over the earth and out to sea. In the evening, weakening light, the last swallows, a boy on a lake lifts his oars, a woman by a window puts a match to a candle, and the names are outlined on the rose clouds. Vanacore and Wallace, then Young and Zeminski, the final jolt of Z. Names etched on the head of a pin, one name spanning a bridge, another undergoing a tunnel. A blue name needled into the skin. Names of citizens, workers, mothers and fathers, the bright-eyed daughter, the quick son. Alphabet of names in a green field. Names in the small tracks of birds, names lifted from a hat or balanced on the tip of the tongue, names wielded into the dim warehouse of memory. So many names, there is barely room on the walls of the heart. That's Billy Collins. Jim, that day, we, you and I were both at the state capitol as it all unfolded. Yeah, and it's it was it, it was uh, you, you know it was it was this cascade of realization because first you know you heard that a plane had 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 gone into one of the buildings. Uh, it was no one could say whether it was a just a light private plane or or what. And then the second plane hit, and then you knew something was up. It was it was it, it was uh, uh, it only got worse through the day. Uh, you know, one thing I'd, I'd, I'd point out, uh, and I gleaned this from a political Politico argue, uh, article that's out there today, is that that on September 11th, 2001, 13,238 children were born. They were they were the good things that happened that day, and they have now graduated from high school, and they are going to be able to vote in their first presidential election in November. 
Uh, it's it's, it's amazing how time passes. Uh, Michael, there are many people who fear that the further we get from that date in 2001, the better the chances are people are basically going to forget uh, about it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to spend just a few minutes on it today, because, Michael, it's a day we simply cannot forget. Oh, absolutely not. And you mentioned my service as labor commissioner. I was getting ready to go to work at the labor department uh, on that morning when the first uh, plane uh, crashed. And it was just, as Jim, I think, stated it beautifully, it was cascaded. And the situation, as we gained more information, became uh, more dire. But it's something, as you mentioned, and we'll talk about it earlier, it, that day and the immediate aftermath may have been the last time we as Americans actually stood together shoulder to shoulder in face of a national crisis. And, and it's interesting that you brought it up and how we are now as we face another crisis and how difficult it is for us to rally to the flag and to our nation and to confront this crisis as we did uh, 9-11. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Sam, uh, that was certainly something I wanted to uh, ask you about. Um, you know, on, on that date, uh, I remember images in the aftermath of, of the towers coming down of senators across party lines um, embracing one another uh, in response to what had unfolded. Um, and there was that moment of unity, the George W. Bush in his bullhorn moment going and standing <clears throat> on the rubble pile and uh, vowing that we would all come together and, and fight back. Uh, a very different time than, uh, Sam, what we're experiencing now. Absolutely. Uh, the Cobb County Commission actually had a meeting that morning. And as you could imagine, uh, the clerk first told us that something happened at the tower. Um, and then about 10 minutes later told us the White House uh, allegedly was being uh, evacuated. And it was at that time that the commission meeting was literally stayed uh, with the comment made that uh, we would continue at a later date because clearly nothing coming up in that meeting was uh, as important as what was occurring around our country under attack. And I think, it, as Mike said, it, it's frankly very sad. I mean, think about it, 19 years that we have been fighting with each other instead of supporting each other. And um, it, it's very, very sad that our country is so, so divided. Uh, and if people for a second today just think about how we should be working together, uh, it will in some ways uh, assist the healing of our nation. Um, you know, Karen, uh, it, the wife of the pilot of the plane, uh, United 93, uh, has said it, in the aftermath of all of this, she said the one thing that we should have learned from that day was how fleeting life is and how important it is that we don't waste our time hating. Karen? I think that's very smart in those statements that she made that after that time, we did unify as a nation. People came together. We, we did not see those differences that are so pronounced now. We were... And how we talk about it a lot in the research field is we rallied around the flag. We rallied as Americans to support one another. And now at this time, even with a crisis, we don't seem to be rallying together. We seem to be more divided and not living. And, you know, when you first started with the, the words about the names, I think that even needs to resonate today. We have lost so many Americans during this pandemic, and there are people, they represent those beautiful names. And I think we need to think about that. I was a college student on that morning, mm -hmm. headed off to a history class. And of course, technology was different. We got notifications much differently because we didn't have an iPhone in our hands at that time. And I remember feeling in one day how much I went from almost being a child to a real grown-up and having to face what could be a new life. And I think um, a lot of students in our uh, colleges today are seeing that as well. 
So I appreciate all of you making those uh, remarks. And, and, and I think we, we, I do now want to turn to 2020 and the election we're facing. But, Jim, you know, as we do that, uh, it, it, we don't want to over, uh, I want to say romanticize, but not in, but not in the uh, a sense of a positive thing. We, we don't want to uh, talk about the unity that came together briefly after 9-11 without also pointing out that it was 9-11 that sowed some of the very seeds of, of uh, bigotry and dissension that continue to play out in our election in 2020, um, an anti-Muslim uh, 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 feeling among some conservatives, President Trump running on a nationalistic agenda, um, so, so as powerful as the most positive images of how the country tried to deal with 9-11 can be, we have to remember where it's led us today in terms of the toxic divide in our politics, right? Well, not, not, yeah, not just politics, but, but, but international relations. I mean, it's, yeah, as, as, right. as when, 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 when 9-11 happened on this shore, uh, you saw pretty much all of Europe, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, link arms with us, uh, and then uh, then of course we had uh, George W. who went to, he, who who very particularly went to a mosque uh, in the days that followed to make sure that that everybody understood that this was not that 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 this was not to become a an anti-Islamic campaign. All right. Um, with all that said, let's talk specifically about where we stand today as we uh, approach uh, November 3rd Election Day. Jim, uh, as I said, we're going to talk a little bit more today than we did yesterday about that uh, uh, Senate race number one, the David Perdue seat. He served uh, one term and now faces John Ossoff in that race. Um, Jim, is it surprising to you that the polling is showing Ossoff and Purdue uh, running just about neck and neck, or do you think that's uh, somehow linked to the fact that President Trump and Joe Biden are running uh, fairly close to one another in the state as well? All right. Oh, I, no. This is no. This is definitely being driven by a presidential contest. And of course, what we've seen David Purdue is is try to put a little bit of air between himself. Uh, and and Trump as a as a as a result, uh, there is a poll out, uh, a fresh poll out. Uh, it was commissioned by the AARP, conducted by Fabrizio Ward and Hart. It's a it's a pretty good Republican mm-hmm. firm. Shows shows uh, Purdue at forty seven, and Ossoff at forty eight. So it, I mean, it truly it truly is neck and neck. And one one of the things I was I was I was crunching a few numbers yesterday. And and I was was going back to 20, uh, 2016 uh, and the, the the November election, and uh, well, no, I'm sorry, it was the June 9th primary that I was looking at, and and the one thing that that I noticed was that that David the David Perdue and, and Donald Trump both appeared on the on the on the Republican ballot uh, singly. Uh, there, there was no opposition in, in either contest. Trump got. Forty-eight thousand votes fewer than David Perdue. That, which means that you had forty-eight thousand Republicans decline to vote for to, 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 to cast a vote for the president, but were willing to cast a vote for David Perdue. And I think that's where he is. That's where he is putting his effort. He's trying to expand that number. So, uh, Sam, is is it going to be crucial for a David Perdue who has embraced President Trump throughout his first term in office? Uh, to keep his distance at at this point? Yeah, I think so. And and candidly, I think he's doing a very good job. I think his uh, commercials are excellent. His commercials uh, may, in fact, be the best commercials on TV right now. And and candidly, I think his opponent's commercials are pretty poor. Uh, I'm hearing, you know, ad nauseum about his wife and about um, he's going to attack fraud. And, and, and candidly, I think he comes across condescending. Uh, and with each commercial, I think the spread between the two of them will be greater. Why do you think uh, the, the Purdue spots are so effective? Why do you think they may be the best on the air right now? They're not partisan. You know, for instance, you have the one of the South Georgia farmers saying that we were in big trouble and Purdue came to our rescue. 
Um, you know, there's nothing partisan about that commercial. I, I for one, don't really want to hear a million partisan commercials between now and November 3. I'm sick and tired of attacks on each other. Uh, And the idea of having a commercial to show what you can do to improve the lives of Georgians, frankly, hits me a lot more than than these attacks that go on and on and on. So, so Michael, uh, Sam makes it a good point that the uh, spots that we've been seeing from Purdue have been uh, positive. He has stayed away from the Trump agenda. He's promoting things that he says he's accomplished for the people of Georgia. But that's turning a corner. There is a new Purdue ad that I assume is going to get a lot of play as the campaign moves forward. And it isn't quite as benign as what he's been running up till now. Let's uh, listen to the uh, audio of that TV spot. A worldwide pandemic, a monumental effort to defeat it. Who can we trust? A privileged, inexperienced John Ossoff with a dangerous socialist agenda who's never created a single American job. Or David Perdue, successful businessman with 40 years of getting results, creating thousands of American jobs. David Perdue spent his life solving complex problems. We need his experience now. Michael Thurman, just to be clear, that is a Purdue campaign spot, not an independent uh, PAC spot. So what do you make of that? Well, the long knives are coming out, as they always do. And it has to be expected. I think from Ossoff's perspective, uh, his campaign has done an excellent job in generating and and bringing forth the resources needed uh, to take on uh, a popular incumbent in the Republican Party. And it's always difficult to unseat an incumbent, no matter what level it is. But this race ultimately is a race about Donald Trump and his agenda. And that's why I think uh, you see Ossoff running as strong as he is uh, at this point in time because President Trump uh, is struggling in Georgia compared to other Republican presidential candidates. At the end of the day, um, I think it comes down to whether or not Ossoff can get the last three to four or five percent that has eluded Democrats for the last 20 years in order to be successful. Uh, He's done, I think, a great job up until this point. Uh, he's taken on a popular uh, that uh, an incumbent where all the Republicans are rallied around as opposed to the other Senate seat. And I think that's an advantage for Purdue. But that's kind of where we are. But at the end of the day, it's a referendum about Donald Trump. From that Karen? spot, yes, from that spot that we just heard, the Purdue campaign, they're really, I think, focused on his experience and wanting to actually provide that positive message and that contrast between he has been working in the Senate versus Ossoff, who since 2017, when he came on the spotlight and ran in the special election in the 6th District, there's always been this discussion of how much experience Ossoff has and that he's not, um, he is inexperienced and not prepared to go to Washington to do the work that's needed. I think in part of this, we have seen, too, that um the National Republican Senate Committee is planning to spend between now and the election over $13.5 million in Georgia attacking the Democrats in Ossoff. And I think that's probably a part of the Purdue plan, which is to say about his record and not get negative on Ossoff at this point and allow other outside groups to do that. Yeah, um, one thing we need to keep in mind, Bill, is that there is a libertarian in this race, uh, Shane Hazel, who could yep. take away a, yep. a, a, a vital two, three, four percent of the vote, uh, and which means which means we could end up uh, with this this strange situation of of two still ongoing U.S. Senate races uh, leading up to January five. Uh, in the aftermath of a presidential contest, which would, and of course, if you've got yeah. if you've got two seats in play, that means that means the Senate could very very well be in play. You know, that's really an interesting thing to consider. We spent some time yesterday talking about how it's almost certain that that Senate seat number two, with more than twenty candidates running, uh, is going to go to a runoff in January. But uh, Sam, uh, the notion that 
if in fact Purdue and Ossoff are so close to one another, Shane Hazel very well could force them into a runoff. Do you? But do you anticipate that, Sam, or do you think a clear fifty uh, percent plus one winner will come out of the November third election in that Senate race? So I, I hate to uh, make guesses when it comes to politics. Uh, you, you know, I generally think that the senator has the advantage to avoid a runoff. Uh, you know, candidly in Georgia, those runoffs usually favor Republicans. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's absolutely a runoff in the other race. The issue there is, you know, when is a Democrat going to uh, become popular? Uh, but with regard to Purdue's race, uh, my guess is they'll avoid a runoff. So let's. We just played a Purdue spot, um, Michael Thurman. I want to play for you a, a recent John Ossoff commercial. He's he's had a lot of uh, uh, TV lately, and let's listen to the audio of one of those TV spots. I'm John Ossoff, and so many families and small businesses are hurting right now. But when Georgians needed help, Senator Purdue fought against $1,200 stimulus checks for workers, and he led the fight to cut unemployment insurance while at the same time he gave billions to his corporate donors. Politicians like David Perdue put the donors and lobbyists who fund their campaigns ahead of ordinary people. I approve this message because I'm not taking corporate donations, and I'll put working families and small businesses first. So, Michael, I thought Sam made an interesting point a little while ago when he said he had not been impressed with the uh, Ossoff commercials. Ossoff has run a spot in which he uh, talks about his wife, a doctor, a physician on the front lines coming down with COVID-19. And of course, no one wishes that on anybody out there. He's run commercials about his work as an investigative journalist. From my personal point of view, just as a viewer, I've had a hard time understanding how those uh, commercials are going to drive me to vote for Ossoff. But this one is finally, uh, it, it makes accusations about Purdue that if I buy them, uh, I could understand why he might attract support. Do you, do you understand my, you know, seeing those different kinds of commercials from him? Uh, yes, but, you know, I think uh, what we are underestimating is the uh, how COVID-19 has really just permeated all thinking about politics. And I, it's probably disconcerting if I'm running right now, but people are concerned about their health, they're concerned about staying alive, they're concerned about their kids going out to college or to, uh, to K-12. And so focus on addressing uh, the, the pandemic, uh, showing some empathy for those who may have been uh, impacted by it, I think uh, resonates with voters at this point in time. For those of us who are skilled and veteran politicians, we're looking at these ads as we typically do. But the landscape, the political landscape has changed fundamentally because of the virus and the pandemic. And it's what the professor talked about earlier. I mean, everything has changed. And we make a mistake to look at this race or any race, whether it's state, federal or local, in the same, through the same lens, because COVID has changed everything about how we view politics and, quite frankly, how we live our lives. So, Michael, but what's interesting about what you're saying right now is, uh, you know, it, while President Trump is trying to take attention away from the response to the pandemic and put it on law and order, in Senate race number two, we're seeing, uh, especially Kelly Leffler, jump on that same messaging point that Democrats are going to bring chaos to the streets, they're socialists. Um, so she's go right in line with Trump on that sort of uh, messaging, whereas we're not seeing uh, the Purdue in the Purdue race, Purdue jumping on that same point. He is reaching across party lines uh, in a way that right now she can't afford to because she's got to fend off Doug Collins, right? Oh, absolutely. Purdue doesn't have to defend the right. And she does. Uh, she has a major threat uh, on her right, so it's forcing her uh, to track to the right uh, to try to maintain position in the uh, primary. And see, this Senate race number two, one of the things I want to say, is really a proxy war 
uh, between the Speaker Ralston, Governor Kemp, and Stacey Abrams. The, the candidates are really there uh, at proxies for those three influential politicians. And so it's, that's what makes uh, Senate so number two so interesting, especially uh, the challenge or the fight between Speaker Ralston and Governor Kemp. In, in trying to become the Republican nominee, or at least the victor in this race. So I was going to comment that with the Purdue-Ossoff race, remember, this is a pretty clear-cut general election. So, And, and Mike mm-hmm. made the point a while ago that Ossoff has really got to go after that 2 or 3% to get him over 50% to win this race. And in doing so, he has to make an appeal to suburban women. And I think that they have to be willing to split a ticket if necessary, cross over, be comfortable with him. And so he has to start making a pitch on solutions, not just like he, he you know, obviously in that spot provided the contrast that David Perdue has, um, you know, been working for corporations and he is not. But I think he has to take another step going between now and the election and saying, and here is what I will do so that he can convince those voters out there in suburbia that it's okay to vote for him and trust him to be the senator. In the um, bill of all right, the, let's do this. Let's get our first. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. I, I was just going to say, uh, I'm sorry, that there, there have been some recent Republican polls that show that the suburban women are coming back to the Republican Party that left it in 2016. And it's all a result of these, quote unquote, peaceful protests. Uh, and if that continues for the next two months, um, that is going to make a major change on the uh, November three elections. You know, all right, before we get to a break, I want to respond to Jim. I, I think Sam Olins, who is uh, 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 about as, I think, thoughtful a, uh, a political uh, person that you can can imagine. He even put peaceful protests in quotes uh, which seems to me to be exactly what President Trump is hoping to achieve. And the president always now says there he doesn't differentiate. All of the protesters are essentially rioters in the street. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it it will be the the job of Democrats to to uh, to remind voters what the origin of those protests are and to keep the focus on the origins. And that's that is going to be a, that's going to be fairly uh, hard. And that, and that's one one reason I I think, you know, it, it's it, both both Republicans and Democrats have a have an extremist problem, uh, and 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 I think. Uh, they, 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 there has to be some attempt to apply some discipline to those voices. Otherwise, otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, it it will hurt hurt them in in less than eight weeks now. Yeah, Sam. Before we do take the break, um, I do think it's important that what one of the points I think but you didn't really make this point, but it seems to me I'd like to know what you think about it. That President Trump has been relatively successful in refocusing his campaign at the very least on law and order and taking attention away from COVID-19. Do, do you think he's been doing that successfully and will it resonate in Georgia? Well, I, I think, you know, candidly what matters less is what I think and what matters more is the polling. And I think as it relates to suburban women, uh, the polling is showing an upsurge for the Republican party based on the president's All right. comments. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation. We got to get to a break when we come back a lot more on Political Rewind. Our panelists today, Sam Oldens, Michael Thurman, Karen Owen and Jim Galloway. Uh, Jim, you forwarded to us a, a column from uh, the uh, Washington Post this morning, which I think it, you're, it speaks to the same poll you were talking about a minute ago uh, on the show. Uh, the new poll confirms Republicans' wariness of voting by mail. Talk about that just a little bit and why that seems significant. All right. Well, you've got number one. You've got a, uh, a, a you've you've got the guy in the White House. Uh, saying that that uh, mail-in voting is is fraudulent, it's 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 unreliable, uh, and and the the problem is 
that, as we saw in the primary in, in Georgia, is Democrats have, and, and especially the just teeing off the, the, the 2018 effort by Stacey Abrams, they understand how to use absentee ballots now. Uh, uh, Republicans have begun to lose their mojo in, in that respect, if, if you will. They used to be the party that dominated absentee balloting. And in, the, in that poll you were, you, were, you were referencing in the post, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a building discrepancy between how Democrats view, the, view uh, uh, mail-in voting and how Republicans. And Republicans are far more likely to say, I want to vote in person on Election Day. And, of course, the problem is that some of those people who, who, who intend to vote are going to be bogged down in long lines. They're, they might get uh, a little antsy about the COVID issue, and, and they might just stay home. And that, that's, that's the problem that Republicans have been facing. Uh, it's, it's interesting uh, – uh, over the last weekend, uh, they've tried to repair this over over the last say ten days. I've gotten uh, at my house. I've gotten one robocall from Donald Trump Jr. urging me to 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 vote absentee. I have got two uh, two flyers from this Georgia GOP uh, with Donald Trump's picture on it, with absentee ballot applications attached to it. Uh, so they understand the problem, and they're tr- they're, uh, but it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a real conflict in in political messaging. Okay, so let's bring into that picture the development this week from uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, uh, Michael Thurman, and then I want to hear Sam Olin's on this as well. Uh, Michael, of course, uh, the Secretary of State held a news conference earlier in the week. Uh, to announce that they had discovered that about a thousand people had double voted in the June 9th primary. They didn't tell us anything specifically about who those people are. Uh, they didn't they, he he suggested that those people who voted were for the most part doing it with felonious intent because it is a felony in Georgia to vote uh, twice and that they would be dealt with. He was he said we will not tolerate double voting. So there are split feelings about this. Republicans, of course, Michael, say this is an example of why we cannot trust absentee balloting. And Democrats say this is Brad Raffensperg uh, trying to support the president's theory that absentee balloting leads to fraud. Michael? Well, and 40 percent of those 1,000 alleged double voters actually voted Republican. And so... And as Kathy Cox, the former Secretary of State, correctly pointed out, that the problem was probably associated with um, the database that maintained by the Secretary of State. You know, that his press conference really disturbed me. And the reason is that uh, we've reached a point where the Secretary of State has shared all uh, any even uh, desire to show impartiality and the administration and the conduction and how we conduct elections in the state of Georgia. And that's a sad state of affairs. One other thing I want to add, I didn't get a chance, as it relates to uh, violence in the street. You know what really impresses me is where I see so many Black Lives Matter signs hanging in, in windows where white people live. And I think the Trump administration and, to some extent, the Republicans in general, are really making a huge strategic error because they really have missed the boat in terms of how many whites are recognizing that there's systemic racism and that people have been treated um, uh, in a way that was not fair and not really uh, in line with the way America's principles exist. So to that and to this voting effort to suppress voting, I just think it's going to backfire. And, And ultimately, white people not necessarily black voters who are going to turn out and vote against Trump. But when Trump loses, it will be because of the attitudes and opinions and the white, and I've talked to them, who are disgusted by what they're seeing in the White House and the way this man and this administration is conducting themselves. So, uh, Sam Olins, I'd love to have you weigh in on certainly the question about Brad Raffensperger's uh, news conference and whether you think he 
was right to uh, call this to everyone's attention, whether he really has cases here. But also we should point out that while uh, Michael's right, there are a lot of white uh, people with Black Lives Matter signs. The polling does show that um, that sympathy toward Black Lives Matter has come down a bit. I mean, a majority of Americans still support the effort for racial justice, but apparently the Trump uh, law and order message has had some impact. Whether it changes votes or not is another matter. Sam? So consistent with the compliment you gave me earlier in the show, Bill, um, number one, there is systemic racism. I find it amusing when people try and deny it. There is. There's implicit bias, and it's time that we correct it and educate folks rather than deny it. Number two, uh, I don't think it was really effective, the press conference uh, from the Secretary of State. Uh, What he intended versus what came out may be very different, but I think the Democrat Party was able to jump on it as another form of potential suppression. And, And candidly, from my perspective, all forms of voter suppression are wrong and should be uh, greatly discouraged. Uh, I think it's fair to say X number of people double voted. It will be reviewed by the attorney general. Uh, But I think, candidly, we need to be doing a lot more to encourage everyone to vote. Karen, weigh in on this. So I would say that I agree, you know, in my personal opinion with Sam and this, the secretary of state may have jumped the gun to go into the press conference, but perhaps maybe just needed to provide facts that there had been incidences of this double voting. They would be investigating to determine what happened. And then also just a review of what the state is doing as far as the database how they are handling the actual working with counties and um, training officials to make sure that absentee ballots are correctly marked and people would know if they showed up at the poll and wanted to vote or and actually know if their absentee ballot had been uh, returned and counted. Um, And I think that we, given the situation we are in eight weeks to the election, all the media focus on the different conversations with voter fraud, voter fraud and voter suppression, that each person in elected office needs to be careful and think about what they're saying, because you don't want to discourage people from voting. You want to encourage people to vote and to feel confident that when they go to vote, they are voting appropriately and that that vote is being counted. Jim Galloway, before we uh, take a break and get and get off the subject of voting, you dropped a column uh, that's online right now. In fact, uh, Sam Bermastos, if we could put a link to it on our social media, that would be uh, terrific. The headline on uh, the piece is uh, Trench Warfare Over the Right to Vote Has Arrived in Georgia. You say this, when the topic of ballot suppression jumps up, many Republicans point to the increasing number of black voters on an expanding registration list that currently tops 7 million in Georgia, up a total of 400,000 or so voters from 2016. How can that, they ask, be suppression? Tell us what you the point you make after that opening. Yeah, yeah, and the, the problem here is is that that you don't have these confrontations over over voting or the right to vote when you have a minority that's 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 on the wane, that's bleeding away voters and and gradually fading away. Uh, surges in black vote, voting and voter suppression are are just inextricably linked in U.S. history, and and. The the, the, the the surges trigger the suppression effort. Uh, it, you can find example after example. Uh, uh, I quoted Carol Anderson. She's a uh, Emory University professor who, who point, pointed when as far back as 1821, when the New York uh, city of New York uh, kind of lowered the the voting qualifications for white men, but increased them for the freed blacks that were in the mists because the, the because their their numbers had increased. So, um, Sam, let, let's talk for a minute about this notion of voter suppression, which is an ongoing uh, battle in Georgia between Republicans and Democrats. Um, and, and the one thing that Democrats, and, and Jim points out in this column, always point to is how in the race for governor in 2018, at the last minute, the Secretary of State's office on the Sunday before the election 
Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, uh, released a very alarming uh, uh, statement saying that they had determined that the Democratic Party of Georgia had tried to hack the voter rolls to gain access to voter information, which turned out not to be true um, and, in fact, may have instead hidden a flaw that was uh, a security uh, risk that was exposed at that time. So, Sam, is it any wonder that there is skepticism about the whole issue of voter suppression here? Look, we, we need to understand that Georgia's had a long history of voter suppression, a long history, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, and there's plenty of um, ill will on both sides over the decades. Uh, The only way you frankly get over that is by doing the right thing and overtly increasing efforts to increase options for people to be able to vote. I I have never understood uh, a single reason to not permit people as many options as possible uh, to be able to have their vote counted. That's what America stands for, and that's what we should be doing. Michael, I want to give you one chance before I've got to get to a final break. Um, Your election folks are going to once again be faced potentially with a huge surge of absentee ballots and then on November 3rd, long lines of voters. How do you feel about the way it's being prepared for in DeKalb County and whether you see any risk of suppression in any of that? In DeKalb County, we believe in the basic right to extend the franchise to as many people as possible. And uh, Sam Tillman, who's chair of the Board of Elections and the Board of Election staff, is working around the clock to ensure that we have a safe and secure as well as convenient voting process. But I want to follow up on what Sam said. Uh, If you go back to 1906, when Georgia legislature passed the state constitutional amendment and the citizens voted to disenfranchise African-Americans. It's a part of and what Jim Collin was brilliant, really. And it's just a part of the process. What it suggests to me, though, when and I saw the Democrats begin to engage in what some would call electioneering in the late 90s, early 90s, when the Republicans were on the ascendant, is that it's the best indication you have that the party in power is on the verge of losing that power. That that's the bit. If you if anybody wants to seek and find some evidence that the way things are trending, when the party in power begins to play these games, that's that's evidence, irrefutable, that times are changing, voting attitudes are changing, and quite frankly, you can try to stop it, but you may as well try to stop the wind from blowing. The change is happening. Uh, uh, Michael. All right, let's get to a final break of the show. We'll be right back. Okay, so my time management on today's show has been about as bad as it could ever possibly be. We've got less than four minutes left in the show, so I'm going to do a quick round with all of you. This week, Mark Roundtree, Landmark Communications, released a poll for WSB-TV about the presidential race in Georgia. It shows Donald Trump having picked up based on other polling, over Joe Biden. He's at 48%. Biden is trailing at 41%. Uh, uh, Let me start with you, Karen. And again, everybody's going to have to be fairly uh, brief on this. Uh, Do you think that in the long run, Georgia reverts to the red roots that it's been part of this state for 30 years? So based off this polling at this time, I would say that the numbers are looking good for Donald Trump to probably win, but very, very... uh, slight margin. And the reason I want to point out on this poll, the interesting fact for me was that there is a slim gender gap. So Sam was right earlier when he talked about uh, Republican women maybe coming back to Trump or leaning more that way, unsure of Biden, because the gender gap here in this poll is only 3% with Biden up in that 3%. Yep. Um, Michael Thurman. Uh, is this, is the state going to go be a red state again on the presidential level? It's all about whether or not typically white Democrats who vote Republican in Georgia will revert and begin to vote Democrat again. This entire race is about what moderate uh, voters, white voters, and their thinking and how they're going to cast ballots in November. 
But okay, I, I, we got enough time for me to ask you one other question. But it, but Stacey Abrams in 2018 was the one was the candidate who led the way on not worrying about those former yellow dog Democrats and instead going after a new constituency. Now you're saying you've got to bring those people back to the Democratic Party. Well, no, I'm saying that demographics is one thing. Registered vote and voter participation. You have to do both. You have to turn out the base and oh, okay. appeal to moderate voters. I mean, you can't do, I've always believed that. That's how I've conducted my politics. You turn out the base, but you also have to appeal to moderate white or other voters. I got, thank you for explaining that to me. Uh, You've done pretty well working Mm -hmm. it that way. Sam Olins, is Georgia red in the presidential race? And does a landmark poll (sighs) indicate that? I think so. I think the real test will be 2022 when, once again, you expect Stacey Abrams to be leading the ticket. Thank you for that. Galloway, you get the last word. I'm going to hold fire into the last two weeks of the election because that's when, in, in, in the past, that's where we find out whether voters are going to snap back to their, their traditional positions or not. All right. Um we are really just about out of time today. I really appreciate all of you uh, being here. Uh, Jim Galloway, Karen Owen, Michael Thurman, Sam Olins. As always, you all give us such great information and such good analysis. Um, my thanks this week, too, to Jake Troyer and to Sam Burmis Dawes, to Amelia Brock, our new senior producer. By the way, I do not say enough. That Sam Burmis Dawes, while the rest of us are sheltering in place, has been going in along with Jake and with Jesse uh, uh, Nicewang, or our other engineer, to the office doing our show every day. And we're grateful that you uh, do do that. So thanks all of you for being with us for another Political Rewind today. We're back again on Monday. Jim Galloway will be joining me. Uh, in the meantime, over the weekend, uh, do me a favor. Uh, Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, please wear a mask, and go get your flu shot. That's it for us for this week. Next week, week 26 of doing Political Rewind sheltered in place. Take care, everybody.